Welcome to episode 98 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Michael A. Walren Jr. on, affectionately known as Pastor Mike. He's the senior pastor of First Corinthian Baptist Church, FCBC in Harlem, New York. Uh, pastor Mike is quickly rising as one of the most prolific and sought after teachers and preachers in the country. Considered a visionary, culture architect, and game changer by his peers, Pastor Mike has not only catalytically changed the traditional perspective of Black church, but he's innovatively shifting the paradigm of Christian understanding and culture. Within the two years of his leadership at FCBC, the church experienced an exponential growth, tripling its membership. Over the past 11 years, membership at FCBC has grown from 300 to 10,000 members. And I want to big, uh, give a big welcome to Pastor Mike. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Great to be yep. here with you. Absolutely. And so the way we discovered Mike was through PBS's recent series, Mysteries of Mental Illness, which was like a really dope, I think it was a four part series, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, so yeah, that's how I became familiar with you, your background, your work, which uh, I mean, I was super fascinated by because obviously, you're such an inspirational human. And then on top of that, you kind of are able to be vulnerable and share these experiences of your early life and you know, some of the struggles that you were going through now. Uh, so Mike, can you tell us a little bit about your background and especially in your early 20s and how you began to understand mental illness oh man um background i mean i i um born and raised in new york um first one in my family born in the united states actually oh wow where are your parents from barbados nice oh, cool um very first one and to understand my mental health journey it, i have to go back there because when i was a young boy i, I always told my parents i was often say I didn't feel well, I didn't feel well. I was a great student, never made excuses, but as long as I can remember, it was, I didn't, I don't feel well. And I would often have these feelings, I'm talking about like seven, eight, nine years old, of just not feeling good. Sometimes I would have pains, discomfort. Um, and so when I was about 10, my grandmother noticed um, when I turned my face a particular way, she noticed I had like a lump in my face. And so she asked me about it. I never noticed it. And she asked me, did it hurt? I said, no. And she told my father, you know, I see this lump in his face. So long story short, we go to the doctor. This was in about August, August of 1981, I was 10. Um, by November 1st, I was in a six hour surgery removing a tumor. Wow. Uh, and which left a scar on my face, but the tumor at the time, they they can't they they told my father afterwards, and I was 10, they said, we don't think he'll live to 13. Oh, wow. And the reason was they couldn't, they didn't understand what was going on, but they knew something was drastically wrong with my immune system. They didn't understand it. They thought it was some label of auto, a, a kind of autoimmune disease known as sarcoidosis. It wasn't that, but that was the label. I stayed with that diagnosis for 36 years of sarcoidosis. And what was happening over those time, over that 36 years, just numerous hospitalizations, numerous sicknesses, it would get worse, infection on top of infection. I, I can't begin to count how many times I've been hospitalized, surgeries, and it was really bad. I had a really bad episode in college. At the time my girlfriend was pregnant, who's my wife now. <laughs> and, you know, I, I lost in two weeks, 20, 21 pounds. And this is in 1990, you know, um, and 
No doctors understood what was going on, but this diagnosis of sarcoidosis hung in the air for a long time. It was around in my 20s, I shared this, I think, in the documentary, the piece, PBS, that I started experiencing depression because, you know, when you're always sick and, and no one fully knows what's wrong with you, mm. but you know what you're feeling. I remember I had a doctor when I was in grad school. I went to grad school at Duke and I went to see a doctor. I just moved to North Carolina and repeatedly going. Look, something is wrong. They would do all these tests. We don't know what's wrong. There's nothing there. Something wrong in my eye. We don't know what's wrong. And then he, he told me he thought I needed to see a psychiatrist mm. because he drops this word again that I heard as a child, hypochondriac, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not a hypochondriac. I know what I feel in my body and I know what I'm sick. And there were physical things happening to me at the same time. But if you could imagine from the time you're a child, you know, constantly sick, and nobody really knowing. Now, my parents never told me what the doctor said, which explained a lot about my childhood. My parents were extremely protective. And it wasn't until my 30th birthday that my father told me what the doctor said, that they didn't think I would make it to 13. Mm -hmm. So that was very traumatic for me at 30. That was 20 years ago. And I'm like, wow. I, and, and so much of my life made sense why my parents were the way they were with me, why they were so smothering. Could you imagine if you, you're a parent and someone tells you your 10 year old child won't live another three years, you can imagine what that does to them, but then the impact it had on me as they raised me. So they're raising me as a child, 10 comes, 11 comes, 12 comes, 13, I'm still living. But in their minds, there's still this notion that, hey, we may not have long with our son. While at the same time, I'm still going through being sick. I'm still going to doctors, I'm still going to hospitals and nobody definitively, definitively knowing what was going on. So it was probably around in college um, that I started first experiencing depression. And because I was tired of being sick and I was tired of no one understanding. And, um, you know, my wife was my girlfriend then. I mean, she helped a lot because that love she showed for me really helped nurture me in ways that, you know, really nurtured me to, to wholeness. And then we had a son when we were in college and that kind of shifted, but helped me as well. Cause now I had to show up for another human being, you know? So, I, I still was battling going through grad school. I remember in grad school, I, you know, I had, by this time, I'm 23, two small children, married, um, full-time grad student, two part-time jobs. The stress was crazy, but again, of course, still dealing with those physical challenges and going to the doctors. So that's when it really started, I would say around 20, between 23 and 25 is when I really started finding myself dealing with these bouts of depression, but not knowing how to name it, right? Because I didn't grow up in a household where, hey, go see a therapist. I didn't grow up in a community where it was, you know, oh, go see a therapist. I just knew something was wrong with me. I would go through these moments of not wanting to be around people, not wanting to talk. It was difficult because I'm a husband and a father. And um, it would go from these highs and lows of feeling good one day, next day feeling horrible and feeling in these really dark, bad places and that went on man for about you know 10 10 10 maybe about 10 years just off and on these bouts of depressive states never going to a doctor never going to a psychologist psychiatrist never seeing a therapist and i mean i could see the toll it was taking on me there were times it was taking a toll on my family because i would get angry i would go through these different mood swings it got really bad in my 30s, when I left North Carolina, I was pastoring a church in North Carolina. I came out here in New York in 2004, 
at 33 to take FCBC. And it was three years in um, that these sicknesses exacerbated by the stress, you know, here I am in this church, this church is growing, I'm working myself to death almost. And uh, one of my, the trustees of the church recommended a doctor because of the sarcoidosis. I would tell people I have sarcoidosis, but nobody really knew what that meant. It was predominantly a pulmonary disease. And she said she had a friend who was a pulmonologist at Columbia. So I went to see him. And then when I went to see him, it was because I was short of breath all the time. And so he, he comes, he does testing, he does chest x-rays. You get the chest sickness, I'm 36 this time. You get the chest x-rays back. And there's a whole, my whole, the right lobe of my lungs looks, it's completely dark. It's dark. So I'm looking at the pictures, he's showing it to me. And I'm panicking because I know this is not good. You know, one, one side clear, the next side is dark, something is wrong. And he says, and I said, well, what is that? He said, if you were a white male, I would say that's lymphoma. Wow. He said, but I do think it is sarcoidosis. He said, we're going to biopsy. Well, they do the biopsy. Sure enough, they say it's sarcoidosis. And so immediately, the only treatment for sarcoid is autoimmune disease, is steroids. Mm-hmm. So they give me heavy dose. Now, I end up being on steroids for six years. Steroids, you know, has all kinds of effects on you physically, but emotionally. So he told me in advance, there would be, I would experience mood swings and things like that. Well, you can imagine, here's a person who's experienced bouts of depressions at this point for 10 years. And now you now put them on steroids that are going to now exacerbate the mood swings and all that stuff. So it was, it was horrific um, because I was feeling these kind of bipolar experiences. And... On top of that, you know, I'm gaining weight now because of steroids. I'm not feeling myself. While at the same time, I'm a pastor of a congregation that's fastly growing. And now I got to build a staff. I mean, it was a lot to deal with. And it was pushing me further and further. And the thing was, I think I shared this in the doc, in the piece. You know, here I was looked upon as this person, the go-to person for so many people. And I never really felt like I had anyone to go to. And it was a breaking point in about 2012. I was contemplating running for Congress in 2014. And in 2013, I just had a break, man. Like I, I felt like I was losing my mind. I remember one night, I just was in the living room watching TV. I remember kicking the coffee table, throwing stuff and just left the house. And I was like, I need help. And I, one of the staff members at the church, she was our director of communications. I remember she was talking about a therapist that she knew. Just casually in the conversation, I asked her about the therapist. And um, she gave me the name, information. I made an appointment. And man, literally, this woman helped save my life. Because right before going to see her was the first time I started having suicidal ideations. And I was in Seattle. And I was in a hotel. I was on, on like the 22nd floor. And I get to the hotel, everything's fine. I check in, everything's great. They would tell me how, you know, Seattle was gloomy, but this, the, the whole eight days I was there, it's sunny the entire time. I was like, this is beautiful. Got a great view, you know, from the hotel. I take off, put down the luggage, I go on the balcony, and I'm like, this is beautiful. Took a deep breath. The air was clean, just crisp. <laughs> After I took a deep breath, I heard a voice literally say to me, if you jump, you can survive to jump. Mm. That's what I heard. I never heard anything like that, but it was crystal clear. Like somebody was standing next to me and it kept saying, if you jump, you will survive. You will survive. 
at that very moment, like I felt a force pull me back into that room. I remember closing the door, like fell on the ground in like fetal position, man, and just cried the entire night. I mean, cause I never experienced that. I was scared to go near the windows. I was scared to leave the room mm -hmm. because I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what I would experience. And for most of the time of that eight days, I was just, yeah, I stayed in the room most of the time. I mean, I was terrified. I didn't come back. I didn't share with anybody. Uh, I didn't tell my wife for, you know, a while. But that's when I knew I really had to go to this therapist. And, um, you know, and she just really, really helped me. And I remember in 14, I did run for Congress, right? So now <laughs> I'm running for Congress. And after the campaign was over, I got sick. Now I have to back this up because in 2012, um, I had sepsis. Mm. So and I, I was in a speaking engagement in North Carolina. I got sick. My legs swelled up. I, my friends, one of my best friends' wife was a vice president of Duke University Medical Center. I called him. I said, there's something is wrong with me. But they had known I'd always had bouts of sickness. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to the emergency room. I get there. When I get to the emergency room, man, my temperature was 103.4. My left leg had swollen up. It was unrecognizable. There was bumps all over it, pus. They had to cut my pants off. And the doctor, her name was Helen Davis. I don't forget. She, she was amazing. She, and I told her I had sarcoidosis. She says, this has nothing to do with sarcoidosis. She said, we don't know what this is, but it doesn't look good. And they did a biopsy of the leg and they did a blood culture. So that was on a Friday, two days later, Sunday morning, 7.30, I'll never forget it. They walked in my room and it was five doctors. And that's when I knew this was a problem. Cause you know, I've been enough doctors, enough hospitals know that if a group of doctors walk in the room, something is not well. Yeah, okay. And they said to me, well, you have a, you have a staph infection. I said, okay. I said, is that it? I said, no. She said, no. She said, your staph infection has gone septic. She said, it is in your blood. She said, you have a bacteria in your blood. And she said, and I said, now is that it? She said, no. She said, the bacteria that's in your blood is, is sepsis. I mean, is, is MRSA. Mm -hmm. She said, it is the worst, bacteria. it is the strong, most resistant bacteria to antibiotics that we know. She said, we're giving you the strongest medication that we know to give you is an antibiotic called uh, vangomycin. Um, and she said, but I have to be honest, she said, if this does not work, um, it'll be a matter of days and you won't survive. Wow. That, that like blew me out the water, right? So here's all my life fighting through sickness, fighting through surgeries. And now at this time, I'm like 42. And now well, doc just told me I could be dead in days. And my son was turning 21. My daughter's graduating from high school. And I remember when the doctor left and she had, they brought a social worker came and asked if I had a living will. Told my wife, they said, you may want to call the kids. I mean, it was, it was deep and I'm on medication. So I'm in and out. And when the doctor left, I started crying. And I tell everybody, I had the Denzel tear, like that one tear from the movie Glory, that one tear from <laughs> my face. <laughs> and my wife is sitting there, she's shell-shocked. I'm like, just let me get to the bathroom. She's like, you got to use the bathroom. I said, I don't. I got in the bathroom, man, and I washed my face. And I looked in that mirror. I was like, God, I said, I don't believe this is it. I said, but, and this, and this is literally what I said to this. I said, but if it is, I want to say thank you. It's been a great run, and, and I'm grateful. And that was it. Man, I left that bathroom with such peace. It didn't matter at that point. You know, it didn't matter. I survived it. 
2012, 2013, I start my therapy. 2014, I run for Congress. 2014, three months after the campaign is over, sepsis again, MRSA again, back in the hospital again. So this time it was worse. My internal organs went into septic shock. Like I was dying. When I got to the hospital, I passed out. They said my blood pressure was 98 over 64. Yeah. Like I was dying. And they were able to bring me back. And then they told me after two days, it was sepsis again. I told my wife, I said, listen, I'm done. I said, I'm not fighting. I said, I'm ready to go. I said, I'm sick. This has been my whole life. And I said, I'm, I'm sick. I am over this. And I told her, I said, I'm ready to die. I said, I'm good with it. I said, I've made peace. And I remember surviving it again, having to carry around a, a pack connected with a pick line for three weeks. Oh, no, I'm sorry, four weeks. And I remember like being mad that I survived it. Like, you know, in my mind, I was at the fatigue level. This time I'm 44. The fatigue level was unbelievable. So, you know, I'm taking this journey back from 10 year old, the first surgery. Now I'm 44. And I'm like, look, how much more I got to deal with? Because it wasn't like it was a smooth 44. I'm 50 years old. At that time in my life, I had never known a week with no pain. Never in my life. I didn't, ex I never knew what not having pain was. So you can imagine, here it is. I'm going to my therapist. She's helping. But man, the, the, and at the same time, I'm feeling like I almost have to pretend that church. Because again, I'm the encourager. You know, I'm the motivator. I'm the inspiring one. But I'm dying inside. And I had another breaking moment, man, when Robin Williams died, when he committed suicide. And I'm telling you why, I love Robin Williams. Yeah. And something about that suicide hit me because I know how easy it is to beat to get there. And I had contemplated it before. And you know, that first suicide ideation wasn't my last. And what hit me was I read an article, I think it was in Newsweek about him. And it was one line, it was an article written by a friend of his and he said, and I would never forget this line. He said, Robin Williams did not have a Robin Williams to heal his psychic fractures. And that thing jolted me. And immediately I started shifting my attitude. Cause I said, I've been this person for so many people, but I've had no one necessarily like that for myself other than my therapist. And it just, it, it shook me. And so I really was intentional about really changing some things, meditating. I mean, I just wanted to not be in that constant space. The challenge was I was still always sick. So just as I'm intentional about fighting against these depressive moments, anxiety, I mean, you name it. By this time I'm off the steroids and I swore after the sepsis, I would never take steroids again. So I said, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen to me at that point. I said, I'm done with that because it was taking a toll on my bones, my joints. Mm. And I just said, I'm gonna fight it. But it was this back and forth battle constantly. So when I had the sepsis in 2012, when I started therapy, I then sought to hire a part-time therapist at the church. Because mm -hmm. I said, there are things I know our, our pastoral staff cannot deal with. And I said, I know if I'm dealing with stuff and I need a therapist, there are a whole lot of other people need a therapist. Mm -hmm. So we hired a part-time therapist in 2012 at the church, right at the end of 2012. And then in 2016, um, we opened a freestanding mental health facility, the Hope Center, right around the corner from the church. Free mental health care for the community. If you, once you got in, you got 12 free therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. Then you had follow-up aftercare, and we did it strictly with funds from the church, no public money. We had a partnership with Columbia School of Psychiatry. We had two psychiatrists who volunteered their time for cases with clients who needed to be medicated. I mean, this thing, and it was the first time a church had created in our community 
a faith, a mental health facility, right? So I was doing this, leading this while still battling my own stuff at the same time. Now I'm telling you this story because this is gonna be the part where it's gonna get interesting. 2017, we go on a missions trip to India. While there, I get sick again. I almost didn't want to go because I said, if I'm in India for 12 days and I get sick, like, where am I going to go? Like, yeah. I go. I get sick the last three days, like, really sick. I couldn't eat, couldn't hold anything down. I took my wife, said, do you want to go to the hospital? I said, hell no. <laughs> I'm not going to the hospital in India. I, I said, I will fight this thing through. Just let's get to the, make it to the plane. Let me make it back. I get back, I call the doctor who I've been seeing in Columbia. I said, listen, I need to come in, something's wrong. I'm not as sick as I was, but I don't feel well. He made an appointment for, I think like four days later. <laughs> the next day I get a call from his assistant saying he has to cancel because his mother died. Oh, now, by, during all this time, I became a, a member of the board for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, National Board. And one of the board members I told, they said, listen, we know a guy at Mount Sinai Hospital and he's a sarcoidosis specialist as well. And if you really want to see somebody instead of waiting for your doctor, not to call. Man, this guy sees me in two days. His name was Adam Morgenthau. I get there, send him all of my records, and we get there, my wife and I, and you know, they ran some little breathing tests and stuff. He walks in the room, no official test run. Guy looks at me and says, I don't think you have sarcoidosis. Wow. I wanted to hurt this man. <laughs> And, and the reason was, yeah. by this time now, I'm, I'm 46. Yeah. I was diagnosed with this thing 36 years before. And you're going to come without a test and tell me that I don't have this thing that has been my narrative my whole life, right? All that I've been through. And I remember leaving the doctors. I told my wife, I said, he's crazy. I said, this dude is, is out of his mind. But we did blood work. Wait, wait. He, said, I, he says to me, I'll call you in seven, seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. This was on Valentine's Day, 2017. Mm -hmm. He called the next day. I didn't answer the phone because mm -hmm. again, I've dealt with doctors. If a doctor says I'm gonna call you in seven days and calls you in 24 hours, mm -hmm. something's wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not answering the phone. I don't, <laughs> even, I don't, I don't believe yeah. he's legit, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know what he's gonna tell me now. I don't wanna hear it. <laughs> yeah. Called again the following day, early that morning. My wife is like, look, answer the phone. I said, I'm not answering the phone. Still answer the phone. We're driving now together. We were taking an Uber to work. And I said, I don't know why. She said, just call my caller. He gets on the phone. He says, you know, Mr. Walren, he said, I know. He said, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you do not have sarcoidosis. He said, I think I know what you have. He said, and at this hospital, we have a doctor here who is the best in the world at immunodeficiency diseases. Now he doesn't say what it is. He says, the problem is she is all over the world, traveling, teaching, seeing people. He says, so it's gonna be a while to see her. He said, now if you wanna see somebody, another immunologist, I can do that. He said, this is the best in the world. And I said to him, I said, hey, I, I'm for it. I've been waited 36 years. So you telling me a few months, this was February. I didn't meet her until November 2nd, 2017. I walk in her office. They do triage stuff. I'm sitting there, my wife and I wait, and I'm nervous. I don't know what's going to happen. Again, she walks in with four doctors. She has this smile on her face. She says, I have been looking forward to meeting you. I said, really? Why? She said, well, first, let me tell you, you do not have sarcoidosis. Never had it. 
She said, but I know what you do have. She said, you have a very rare disease. She, I said, what is it called? She said, common variable immunodeficiency, CVID. She said, have you ever heard of it? I said, absolutely not. I said, well, what is it? She said, well, you know, you have antibodies and you have that, that fight against pathogens, right? She said, uh, Mr. Warren, you were born with no antibodies. Wow. She said, and the reason why we're here now is we have no idea how you have survived for 46 years. She said, you're old enough to remember a long time ago, there was a movie with John Travolta, The Boy in the Bubble. Mm. If you remember that? She said, no. that's the disease you have. He mm. was this young boy living in a bubble because he could get sick from anything. She said, Oh, Bubble Boy. The Bubble yeah. Boy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The John Travolta. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. She said, that's the disease you have. She wow. said, what is amazing is you've never been diagnosed. You've never had treatment. The life expectancy is is maybe 35 with some treatment. You are 46 years old, never been diagnosed, and you're still alive. She said, you have no antibodies in your system right now. Wow. She said, a cold should kill you. She said, uh, uh, she said, and you survived, and by the way, I didn't say this at all. She said, you survived sepsis three times. You were in India and got sick by a paras some parasite that got in your system. She said, you've been sick, gone hospital. She's like, you've got tattoos. She said, <laughs> Infection. If you got an infection from tattoos, you could die. Right. She said, and we have no idea why you're still alive. And she said, and by, she said, there is treatment. And we can't cure it, but we can build your immune system up um, with the treatment. And my first treatment was December of 2017. It is immunoglobulin, synthetic antibodies infused every four weeks. Mm -hmm. It takes about three to four hours to do infusion. And it builds, it gives, so basically it gives me antibodies. Right. And, and the way they timed it out with the dosage, basically when I'm at the four week period, my tank, if you take a gas tank, my tank is at about a quarter left and then they re-up, so they re-up. So whenever I get to that point, when, I, when it's time for me to re-up, I feel like right now I've been sick most of this past couple of days because my fusion is next Wednesday. A week out, I start feeling sluggish. Right. And so, yeah, man, 2017, found out I had to see all of my life. I had swollen lymph nodes, little, little granulomas here and there. Other tumors pop up. She said, that's all part of the condition. She said, because you also have a mutation called granulomitis. She said that everybody who has CVID doesn't have it, but you have. So you have CVID and granulomitis. So basically, my red blood cells, the white blood cells, I'm sorry, are, they, just, they wave this sign to your immune system, say, hey, something's wrong. Mm -hmm. My white blood cells raise a flag, hey, guys, something's wrong. There's no antibodies to come. So the mutation is the white blood cells try to act as antibodies, but wow. they can't. So they send a signal for all these white blood cells. They come together and form tumors. That's what they removed when I was 10. Wow. And in 2018, August 28th, the rarest of the rare of CVID, a tumor, a granuloma formed in my brain and caused a massive stroke, August 28, 2018. I'm sitting there in the hospital, woke up, could not speak, left side paralyzed. And you talk about a funk. You talk about depression. My whole life is speaking. And I'm laying in this bed saying, wait a minute. You know, uh, the, the neurosurgeon comes and shows me the pictures. There's this mass in my brain. They call my doctor. She comes, she says, listen, do not remove that. She said, you've not seen it. Because the neuroscience, neurosurgeon saying, look, we've never seen anything like this before. We need to take it out. She says, no, it is a granuloma. It will go away. It's just that it is rare to form in the brain. Only 1% of CVID patients form them in the brain. Wow. 
and I formed one in the brain and it put pressure on my blood vessels and ruptured. And the blessing was that few things did not go wrong. That day it happened. I had landed at LaGuardia. I was in South Carolina, got to LaGuardia. I'm driving across the Triborough Bridge going into Manhattan and I lost sight of my left eye. There was no pain. I thought something was, I didn't know what was going on. I'm sitting there literally touching my eye and I can't see. So I get off the bridge, pull over, call my wife. I said, something's wrong. I can't see out my left eye. She said, what do you mean? I said, I have no sight in my left eye. She says, are you in pain? I said, no. I said, she said, do you think I need to call the ambulance? I said, I'm going to sit here for 20 minutes or so. If I cannot see, I'm calling 911. 20 minutes in, the sight comes back. No problem. I said, okay, this is crazy. And I had always had problems with my left eye, period. So now I said, well, I mean, she was working with me at the time. So I said, I'll see you at the church. We had a meeting, a staff meeting that morning. An hour into the meeting, all of a sudden I grabbed my wife's arm. I said, I got to throw up. She said, what's wrong? Did you eat? I said, I don't know. Just call me. My last memory was opening up the conference room door. I woke up next to the hospital and couldn't speak and, and was paralyzed. And the stroke triggered three seizures because it happened in my right temporal lobe. So when I woke up and they're talking to me and I, can't, I realized I can't speak, but my mouth is bloody because the seizures are so traumatic, I broke five teeth in the back of my mouth. So all this stuff is happening just at a point when I'm feeling good, I went from I went from December of 2017 up to August 28, 2018, no sickness, no hospitalization, no more infections. I'm like, my God, it's a miracle. It's the first time I had gone so long without having to go to the ER, without being sick. I was like, look, it didn't come when it should have, but I got the diagnosis, I got the treatment, I'm good. And then bam, a stroke. And so that sent me way back. Cause not only the stroke, but now I can't talk. I am a preacher <laughs> and I can barely walk. And I was determined, man, I get out the hospital and they tell me I got to do therapy. I said, I'm not doing none of this. I said, I have survived so many things. I literally had books in my house, man, walking around the house limping, reading out loud until I could talk again. I went to therapy, physical therapy twice. They showed me what I need to do. I said, I will do it myself. And bro, I remember when it happened, I had all these little neurological tics. I had something I never heard in my life, auditory hallucinations, which was crazy because I was hearing the same sound in my right ear, like sandpaper. And the doctor said, you know, it happened. So I'm now, I'm into my, now I'm back in the funk. I'm back with my therapist now. I'm deep in, but the depression is like at an all time high. Suicidal ideations come again. I'm like, I'm sick of it. I'm done. I was like, I am done. And I go to the, the neurologist at Columbia and I said, listen, I said, you gotta tell me something, man. I said, because although I'm still alive, I said, my body's not reacting right. I'm still off, I'm hearing stuff. And I'm talking to him and this guy is busy typing on his computer while I'm talking. So now I'm mad. I'm like, yo, do you hear what I'm saying? He said, no, no, no. He said, I I'm not being, he turns his computer screen around. He pulled up an image of my brain the day of my stroke. He said, you see that? He said, the entire right hemisphere of your brain is soaked in blood. He said, and I have a theory why you're alive. He said, you had a massive hemorrhagic stroke. He said, when you have this stroke, one or two things are gonna happen. He said, you die, and, or if you survive, you cannot walk and you cannot talk. And look at, he said, you are sitting here in front of me, talking, walking. The reason why hemorrhagic strokes are so traumatic is because the brain bleeds so quickly that it never gets a chance to clot. So you die, gone. He said, but the reason why I believe you're alive it's because that tumor was in such a position that it caused the stroke, but it slowed the bleeding down enough for your brain to clot. 
Wow. wow. He said, that's how you survive. He said, I know it's rough. He said, but you should not be here. He said, if I get any of my colleagues, he said, I see 3,000 strokes a year. He said, if I get any of my colleagues and show them this MRI and then introduce them to you, they would not believe you're the same person. You're talking, you are walking. He said, I know it's tough and it will be tough. He said, but understand, you beat the odds. Man, I was sitting there boo-hoo crying. And I told him, I said, listen, brother, you have no idea how many odds I beat life, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that was 2018. Since then, I got better. I'm good. But, you know, there's still those moments, you know? And my mental health challenges, my depression, my anxiety, the bipolar stuff came from medication, but my depression anxiety was from my physical condition. Sick all the time, 30, like 46 years of always being sick. And nobody definitively knowing what's wrong with you until I was 46 years old, you know, and they found out what was wrong. 46 years to find out what was wrong. Survived sepsis three times, a stroke. I mean, you name it. Hospital. I don't even know how many times I've been to the hospital, you know. Um, wow. I'm here, bro. How do you how do you feel lately? Uh, like, uh, do you feel much? I know you said you you're still getting uh, the infusion next week, but like in general, is, is your well being like much better? It, it is. I mean, other than the stroke, um, which was just the anomaly, other than the stroke, since 2017, December, I have not had an infection. Now, here's the mind blower. When all this stuff about um, COVID hit, now I'm panicked. Because now I'm like, okay, I'm on the treatment, but at the same time, I don't have antibodies. So yeah. I, I was getting on my wife, and I'm walking around the house, man, I got a thermometer in my mouth every time. I'm thinking I got a fever. Mm -hmm. And this was in March when everything went crazy. Not knowing that in January, my wife and I were sick for three weeks. I couldn't go to church. Right. We, in March, we left. We have a place in Atlanta. We went to Atlanta from March through August. We were recording all the sermons, everything virtually. I came back from my, because I would go to Atlanta, but I had to come back once a month for my treatments. Right. I came back in May, I did an um, antibody test just to see. Um, and it showed that I had antibodies from COVID. Wow. Mm -hmm. And and here's a killer. The doctor, this world-renowned specialist, she's the only one who gets federal funding for research around this. Mm -hmm. She says to me, when I saw her in July, she said, we are learning from you still. She said, one, the fact that you survived this thing. She said, of all the patients I know with CVID and all the patients I treat, she said, you and the ones who've had COVID, these are the ones who had COVID that she knows of, that she treats, and that she's in consultation with. She said, I am the only one who developed antibodies from COVID. Wow. She said, we have no idea how that is possible because your body does not produce nor maintain antibodies. So, you know, today I feel good. You know, I, I feel, it's basically, I feel sluggish. I feel really tired when I'm in this phase. It lasts for a couple of days, but that's my sign. It's always almost to the T a week out from my infusion. Right. And there are still moments, you know, when um, I have those little depressive moments. Um, it's not gone, but I'm, I'm still seeing one of my therapists um, because, you know, that many years of living with that kind of physical trauma, you know, aside from sickness, just it takes a toll on you emotionally, man, mentally. Right. And, you know, I remember one day my therapist, when I had come out of sepsis again in 2000, uh, 
and 14. And I was sitting in here, I am, I, I was super skinny, man. I lost weight. I was sitting there with this pack on my shoulder I got to carry because I got to keep these antibiotics in my system, you know, for two months. And she said, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I never forget what I said. I said, I am the strongest MF that I know. I said, I don't know anybody. I said, I'm not saying anybody's stronger than me. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't know anybody stronger. I said, to endure the things I've been doing in my life and survive, I said, I don't know anybody stronger than me. And it was the first time I said anything like that about myself in my life. And it was like a relief. Like I could actually look at myself and say, bro, you are super strong. Because all my life I've been feeling what? Super weak. But to survive it, man, was deep. So that's why it was important for me to open up that Hope Center. That's why speaking about mental health from the pulpit, because, you know, churches don't talk about it. And especially in black churches, you know, you grow up as a kid, you hear somebody have a mental health issue, they talk about, well, this person must got a demon or something like that. They want to pray it away. <laughs> so as, a, as, a, as to be a black preacher, talking about it in the pulpit, which most preachers do not, and then talking about very transparent, you know, telling the congregation, you know, I'm, Congregation is about 10,000, 11,000 people. I'm saying, hey, I've had suicidal ideations. I've thought about taking my life. And yes, I'm the pastor. And yes, I preach and teach. And I said, but my sharing this is to normalize it for some people. And I want to free up other people to be able to speak about it. You know, African-American community is a traumatized community, man. And we've normalized trauma in ways that we don't pay attention to mental health issues. Now, this is across the country, but I'm talking about specifically about traumatized communities. Hmm. And so for me, it was important to share my story, to share my narrative, to be very vulnerable and transparent because it was about healing for other people. How many other people who didn't have access to a therapist, who, 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 who've been suffering in silence, ashamed to talk about mental health issues and their mental challenges, and didn't seek treatment. And you hear about this all the time. And for me, it was not, it was bigger than me at that moment. And, um, you know, that's why I really lean heavily into talking about it, lecturing about it, preaching about it. And so PBS found me because of the Hope Center, mm -hmm. because it's such a rare thing to have, and one of the doctors from the School of Psychiatry to have a church that has done this. And so part of that was, you know, they asked me, did I mind telling my story? I said, absolutely not. You know, absolutely not. So here's where we are. <laughs> yeah, wow. And uh, yeah, sorry, Leon, uh, but um, how did your, or what kind of things did your, if you don't mind sharing, like how your therapist taught you to manage, um, like how to, how to manage with the pain and, and things like that. Is it, was it meditation? Was it like a way of thinking about it? Um, or, or maybe something else. It was, it was, it was a combination. The meditation was something that I just started because I'm, I always studied different religions, and Buddhism had always spoken to me. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, by the way, I love the the language existentialist cafe, right? So I love. Oh, that. thank you, man. I was, I was a philosophy major in college. Awesome. And and in grad school, my focus was philosophical theology. So you know. So I'm sure you, I'm sure you're familiar with Kierkegaard. Well, that's my yeah. that's that's probably my most quoted. Yeah, yeah. period. So, I mean, but um, it was one the meditation I started, and then she was just like, not lean into it, but kind of sit with it. Like it was almost this kind of language of not make peace with the pain, but don't let the pain have dominion over me, right? It's almost come up next to it and realize it's not as terrifying, you know. Instead of thinking about how sick I've been, how much I hurt, 
think about how strong I am and how much I've survived, mm-hmm. right? And that kind of shifting in thinking, and it's stuff I've told other people, right? But um, when you need it and you need to hear it and you need to practice it, it, it became something different, you know? Yeah. So, and it's also, I mean, the thinking here is that although maybe a lot of other people may have not been through the things that you've been through, they also don't have the experience of feeling that sense of strength and purpose that I'm assuming that you feel. Because yeah. it's like, um, so one of our upcoming guests, her name is Emmy Von Dersen. So she's an existential psychologist. And mm. so she literally just recently wrote a book on existential courage and like kind of overcoming existential angst and dread and uh, like the COVID pandemic and sort of like uh, the kind of struggles and travails that people have been through. And she says that, you know what, essentially when it comes to these like really difficult experiences the kind of this sort of the after effect or the way you kind of perceive yourself the world uh life's meaning right all of that is so kind of different than it would have been otherwise because i mean as i'm sure you guys both know people who don't have these experiences they tend to be kind of shallow uh they really kind of focus on sort of the mundane things that don't necessarily really matter that you think of on your deathbed so when she talks about these existential crises obviously you know some of the experiences that you've had mike she talks about the sort of the core character that develops from it which i mean if life does have a purpose i would say that that has to be it yeah 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 i mean look i don't think it's an accident that for me intellectually you know i've always read the existentialists postmodern you know philosophers as well because i found something that like in the midst of all i was doing in my life there was something speaking to me, you know, reading Camus and thinking about the absurd, right? Yeah, right, right. I felt that my life was absurd. This made no sense to me. And, mm-hmm. and trying, to, trying to make meaning, not, not find purpose. I don't use that language often. Even in church, I'm like, well, what's my purpose? No. How do you make meaning of your life? And for me, I had to make meaning in the midst of sorrow and suffering and dread, you know, that, that was unbearable at times. You know, I, I remember the first time I read, you know, Sickness Unto Death. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I remember thinking to myself, reading the book, this is back in college, and also in the 20s when I started having this depression, and thinking, yeah, this may not be unto death, but damn, I want to die. Right? And so Kierkegaard and Camus and a host of other folk really start speaking to me. And it became the kind of hermeneutical lens by which I began to interpret scripture. Because for me, you know, no matter who you are, white, black, Christian, Buddhist, Jew, we all bleed, we all laugh, we all cry. That finding that commonality in our existential reality is what is the binding factor. And when you're in those places, when you feel as though your back is against the wall constantly, you have to make decisions whether I will succumb to the absurdity or make meaning in the midst of it to almost revolt and rebel against the insanity of my existence. Because that's what it was for me for a long time. This didn't make sense. It just didn't make sense that doctors didn't understand it, that I would get up. I would, to, I would today, I would go play basketball when I was younger, right? And then play ball all day. And then for the next four days, I cannot get out of bed. My whole body, my stomach is hurting. You know, I remember like, you know, what was it? What was it? What was it? Uh, and don't say, I, I'm a sick man. My liver hurts. That's how I felt like, like I felt organs hurting in my body. Mm-hmm. And, and you couldn't explain it to people. And you would say, well, what's wrong? Look, I, I think something's wrong with my spleen. I remember saying it to somebody and, and they laughed. And when I got the diagnosis of CVID, what I then found out was the one organ that bears the brunt is your spleen because it's oh. a big gland. 
So mm -hmm. what surprised me was that my spleen was not more swollen than it was. But I remember saying, man, my spleen is killing me. And be mm -hmm. like, well, how you know it's your spleen? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that kind of reckoning that you have to come to when you're pushing a place where you have to make sense. And I think the, the thing that helped me, although it was drained, was what I was doing as a pastor. I was helping other people make sense of their lives while having to try to navigate the nonsensical in my life. And having to show up for people in that way was what made me, it was part of what made me strong. Even though I still fought like hell and fought against things and emotionally and mentally, I still knew I had to show up. And that feeling of having to be present for another human being is what helped me to become present for myself, right? In the midst, I mean, in the midst of the deepest depressive moments, I, I refuse to not show up to preach on Sundays. I refuse to not show up to teach classes, you know, because I knew that that was the thing galvanized me. It's the thing that made me get up and not surrender to what I was dealing with. So, you know, I agree with what with, with the woman said. I mean, existential crises and, and having those existential breaking points in your life, I would help you shape in, in ways that are not, definitely not superficial, because I think, I think we're in this tragic age of shallowness right now that is sickening to me, right? But, but I think that's that kind of suffering, that kind of sorrow, that kind of physical and emotional pain that I've experienced has actually deepened my humanity in ways that I, I can't even begin to comprehend. And I can imagine that that has something to do with you becoming a pastor, because I'm assuming you wanted to alleviate some of the suffering that you saw in yourself and others. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I'm be honest with you. I, I went to college to be a lawyer and it was my freshman year. I had this traumatic encounter. It was definitely a spiritual encounter because I, I grew up in church, but I stopped going to church. I, I was done with church at around 12 or so. And they couldn't make me go to church. I had issues with my family. I had living, my grandmother. So I go to college and I'm like, look, I'm a lawyer. And I literally had what I thought was a, a mental breakdown. I, I was getting, getting ready to go to the shower one morning, October 29th, 1989, I'm in the shower. And all of a sudden, while I'm in the shower, the water felt like rocks hitting my head. I said, oh my God, I'm losing it. Because I would have these moments, even at 18, where because of my sickness, I thought sometimes think I was strange, I was a little crazy, whatever, you know, because when you keep hearing people say hypochondriac, you start thinking maybe something is wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm in the shower, and I'm feeling these things like rocks in my head. Man, I bolt out the shower, I grab my towel, I'm running my room, I start break out crying. My roommate's like, what's wrong with you? 20 minutes, bro, I can't stop crying. I'm just crying. He gets the RA, RA's like, what's wrong? I can't communicate, I'm just crying. The resident director comes in. They actually called the campus police to come. They thought I had to go to the hospital. They thought I was having a breakdown. I stopped crying after 30 minutes. Uh, just stopped. In the room, my roommate says, man, you okay? Bro, the first thing out of my mouth, I said, I'm gonna be a preacher. Wow. Huh. That was my call experience. Mm -hmm. I had not thought about it before then. I certainly didn't think about it because it just came out. Nobody in my family is a preacher. Nobody in my family was in ministry and it came out. But I know that next day, that Monday, I went to my advice, I'm changing my major. They said, well, I said, I want a double major in philosophy and religion. I had never taken a philosophy class in my life. Mm -hmm. I was like, that's what I want to do. That was my call. And from that moment on, that was the trajectory of my life. And I, and I did not plan on pastoring. I wanted to be a professor, but I got kind of backdoored into it in a strange way. <laughs> Old story for another day, but yeah. But I've been really for 25 years. I'm just curious, have you ever read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? Of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I now we have to get into it. What are your thoughts on it? I mean, it's funny. I just wrote an afterward for a book, and I quoted him like twice in this afterward. Nice. Uh -huh. um, 
there, there are points, I, you know, hearing his story, hearing about the Holocaust, for me, I could resonate, right? I look at the, the narrative of African-Americans in this country and what and how you have to find meaning to make sense of your of your life in those most dire situations. I resonated with a lot of it, you know? I really did, um, not all of it, but I resonated with a lot of it, enough to quote it a few times <laughs> in a piece. But I think we are in some ways on a quest, not for purpose. I love the language of meaning because what happens is when people say they will find their purpose, they think when they find their purpose, aha, life now makes sense. I think as we evolve, we make meaning in different ways. That part of our evolution is to also continually make meaning of our lives, not find purpose, but we make meaning. And so at different stages, based on where we are, I think we have to find ways to make meaning of, make meaning in our life my, my, my sadness now is that meaning is not being made in, right. in this culture right now, right? Um, people are seeking value, but not value for life, but they're trying to find value and are making their, what I believe is inherent worth as a human being, synonymous with attainment of things, with superficial things, and that's sickening to me. And I said in a sermon one time, it is amazing how people who are the embodiment of life and what I believe is the embodiment of infinite possibilities determine their sense of worth and value based on inanimate goods, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that is insane. And, and there's a sickness right now that, that is just operating under the current of our culture that is not being deeply addressed because everyone is, is, is held captive. Not everyone, many people are held captive by it. So, I mean... I go on. Yeah, no, I, I saw your recent uh, service or sermon, uh, I Am Worthy. It came out like oh, maybe yeah. a week ago. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I was listening to it. You're like, oh, uh, you're you're born worthy. People are trying to seek something outside of them in order to feel that worth. Yeah. But yeah. it's actually in, in reverse. If they just felt that worth, they would not they would know that it's not something that exists outside of them. They would change the total foundation and, and meaning in their life. They, they then it would change their relationship to life. Absolutely. And, yeah. I, said, I, I think I said that we're born accomplished. Right. You know, we're born at arrival. And so if, we, if we're not seeking living life to achieve and attain, life should be a journey of discovery you know, self-discovery and, and also the joy of it. And so, you know, that Sunday was interesting because it was actually Pride Sunday. So, I, you know, I had on, we had on those worthy shirts were part of Pride Sunday, which again is a rare thing because, you know, churches are hard on LGBTQ community. And so, you know, um, that's not our narrative. That's not my narrative, right. you know, at all. But yeah, you're right, man. That's what, I, I, I believe that. That's what, what shapes me. That's what I teach and I preach to folk. Like, it is finding ways to, to rebel. I, I think I put a post up the other day and I said, you know, we, we are experiencing the normalization of pretentiousness and authenticity is demonized and freedom is on life support, man. you know, and, it, and I believe that. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, no, I, I feel like people, I, I agree with you that it's being normalized, uh, that pretentiousness, but I still feel like authenticity still speaks to people. Oh, yeah, yeah no. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think like mediums like FCBC, uh, NYC, or different podcasts, mm -hmm. or um, different things that are sort of popularizing, sort of talking about things that aren't normally popular. Like, for yeah. example, I mean, we're, we're not like uh, big in the podcast uh, scene, but like, for example, 
uh, let's say Joe Rogan, right? So I know he's controversial, all of that. But a lot of times he'll get into, he'll talk about really good things, like very uplifting, motivational sort of uh, narratives, uh, different ways of thinking. Maybe we'll talk about ego and like identifying with certain things and that's not really you <clears throat> and things like that. And that's going out to millions of people, right? And there's also all these other different people talking about similar things that are sort of sending out like uh, ripples, right? Yeah. And little influences that never really existed without the internet. It, you just had to be lucky, born in the right place or be around the right people. It's still like that now, but I feel like the barrier between that and like real authentic communication or way or good ways of thinking. Oh, there's lots of different ways of thinking. I feel like that barrier is like, uh, isn't as much there as it used to be. Yeah, I, I think I, I'm in agreement. I, I think that as much as shallowness and, and, and the superficial, superficial engagement marks our culture, I also do believe that there are, there's a, also a countercurrent, right? That is happening where people are starting to gain. I think it's because of, of the pretentiousness that people are starting to understand that, you know, your authenticity is your superpower. You know, it is a thing that, that frames you, that, that really holds you unique. So, I mean, I've, I've talked about this. I think the sermon before I Am Worthy was uh, called The Beauty of Anonymity. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was kind of me, my critique of this, of the, the kind of narcissism that exists in our culture. You know, um, I tell people, you know, it was easy to, to look at a Donald Trump and say, oh, he's a pathological narcissist. Well, well, we're in a narcissistic culture. And so he's a manifestation, as many of us are. You, you cannot every day post on Instagram not think you're narcissistic, right? You, you can't spend your entire day scrolling to see other people. Like, like it is, it's narcissism, it's voyeurism, it's exhibitionism. I mean, it's all these things. But you're right. I think at the same time, there is another current where people are getting weary of this because at the same time, this stuff is depleting of the spirit man, and, it, and diminishes the human soul. And finding ways to accentuate that, um, the soul, the power of the spirit, the power of authenticity, the power of your uniqueness and your genuineness of spirit, those narratives are out there. Um, and, and, and I'm believing that they'll prevail at some point. You know, we're at a very interesting moment. I think, you know, most, some people don't observe it, but this, this moment is very similar to other transformative moments in the history of this country, culturally. There are a lot of similarities between now and different periods of this country's history, and not just this country, but other countries. I think we are on the precipice of something very powerful. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know when. I don't know what that thing is going to be that is going to serve as a form of disruption to the kind of cultural insanity we see in some ways, but I'm ready for it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And then even kind of speaking of narcissism, right? Even the existentialism has in some way been co-opted by narcissism. Absolutely. If you think, yeah. Yeah. If you think about like the search for meaning or self-discovery or whatever, it's like, oh, I'm like this special human, right? That's like kind of above other people or at least somewhat distinct from or distant from them. And therefore now I have to kind of find my own life purpose or whatever. So what I love so much about Viktor Frankl's work is he said, no, no, don't ask what your purpose is, yes. right? Because he's like, life is demanding of you, right? Don't demand of it to tell you what your yeah. purpose is 
is life is always demanding of you and it's always asking you, right? It's always asking for you to figure out, for you to be responsible, first of all, for you to figure out resolutions to its problems, right? So it's not sort of like, what's your purpose, right? Your purpose is kind of all around you. All you have to do is just kind of open your eyes and you'll see it. Life has all of these different problems, whether they're personal, kind of more communal, right? Usually some combination because you're intertwined with the community. So the idea there is that your purpose is all around you, right? You have all of these different ways of finding meaning or rather of even creating meaning, right? You just literally have to see it, right? And kind of look outside of yourself. Yeah, there's a, a theologian, African-American theologian. I consider him an existential theologian. Mm-hmm. His name was Howard Thurman. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. Mm-hmm. Howard Thurman wrote many books. I mean, he, he wrote books, even his titles, you know, The Luminous Darkness and mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the Inward Journey. I mean, and he was a, I went to Morehouse College. He was a Morehouse graduate. He was a mentor to Martin Luther King and so many other during the civil rights movement. But he says, you know, people who are trying to find, he preached a sermon one time called The Sound of the Genuine, right? Mm-hmm. Talked about the genuine within all of us. But he said, you know, people are busy looking for purpose and trying to seek their purpose. He said, find out what makes you come alive. He said, because what the world needs are more people who come alive, mm-hmm. right? That's what the world needs, people who are alive. And, and for me, you know, that line, that idea has been in some ways, existential stuff has been caught by narcissists, but in the narcissistic rhetoric, I would say. But yeah, I, I think what I would say is that co-option of existentialism is by a very particular kind of narcissist. Psychologists talk about, you know, the grandiose narcissist versus the, the vulnerable narcissist, right? And it's those grandiose narcissists who haven't necessarily lived with consequences, right. you know, that, that it, it becomes this kind of tainted reality that they are the center and circumference of everything, but but at the same time believe that there's a purity in what they're in, in their endeavors and not seeing the narcissism. It's crazy, but you know, see I like this kind of stuff. We can say and talk all day about <laughs> and then so just i mean i'm going to shift it just a little bit just obviously for time um so mike can you tell us a little bit about the stigma in the black community around mental health and how come for you it was so yeah so how come it was so difficult for you to kind of even consider seeing a therapist early on yeah i i think because I, i'm gonna go back to this narrative i think when you deal with traumatized communities like many african like african-american narrative in this country period and you don't understand the depth of the trauma that it that lingers in the psyche of oppressed people, that the last thing you want to feel is that you are crazy. Right. So there's a reductionism that takes place where there's not even a conversation around mental illness. The conversation is between sanity and insanity. And no one wants to be seen, viewed as insane. I grew up in a community where there were many people who suffered from mental illness. And, and they were part of the fabric and the background of the community. There was a guy we used to call Walking Willie in my community, right? This dude every day walked up and down the main road all day, nonstop, fast as he could. He'd be sweating. And we would see him oh, as Walking Willie. Something was wrong. Something was wrong. And nobody, nobody ever paused to think, what's wrong with Willie? You know? Or there was a woman by the church who, her name was Lisa. She was, every time we saw Lisa, she was drunk, alcoholic. And I would talk to Lisa, try to help Lisa. And she never liked to go to shelters. And on a cold night a few years ago, they were, when they were gathering people in New York City up who were homeless to get them in, she gets into a shelter, she gets in an argument, somebody hits her, she falls down and says she dies in the shelter. Wow. Well, people in the community and I ask, you know, can we do stuff for Lisa? Come to find out, Lisa had a husband 
who was a lawyer in Tallahassee, three children who were police officers. And here she was living on the streets of Harlem, right? Drinking her life away. Husband said her family had a history of mental illness and they never really addressed it even as a marriage and they just saw her decline. And when she left, that was that. No real searching for, her, right? So when you have a community that's traumatized and also reluctant to be viewed as traumatized, right? That's where the normalization of it comes in. Then there's a lot of hesitancy to talk about mental health because it's reduced to being crazy or insane, right? And so that's the first thing you hear. Well, I'm not crazy. I'm not saying, well, no. There's other levels of mental illness beyond you know, a kind of radical departure from reality. So I think the fear of being labeled on top of the trauma is what makes it difficult in Black communities to talk about and, or even address. On top of that, the stigma, there's the lack of resources. I mean, my therapist just increased a couple of last year. It's like $225 an hour. Who has $225 an hour, right? When the majority of people, I'm looking at Central Harlem, people are living, at, a lot of people are living at poverty or even below poverty, who has that resource, right? So, so you have a, a stigma issue, you have a resource issue, right? I've done, I was part of a, a, a congressional task force around mental health. And we started targeting because it was a period where the highest rate of suicide, check this out, in the country was of black boys between eight and 13. Wow. Between eight and 13. Now they're saying the highest rate is adolescent girls between 12 and 17, right? Of across race, racial barriers. And so when we, when we start thinking of black boys, there was a young girl a few years ago, a 10 year old girl in Harlem who was being bullied. She went up on the top, she lived in the projects. 15th floor, she went to the top of the roof and jumped off 10 years old, oh. 10 years old, because nobody was really seeing what she was dealing with. Nobody saw the depression. The family didn't see it because why? Well, they just saw those moments of her being quiet or retreating or spending time with something, just who she is. That's just her personality, right? So because we don't have constant conversations around mental illness, around how to identify it, we don't. So one of the first things we did at the church was do mental, uh, mental health first aid training. We had 1,300 people trained as mm -hmm. mental health first responders in the church, right? On top of the Hope Center, on top of the constant uh, group sessions and things we do, we wanted to normalize a conversation. We wanted to make sure that the narrative was a constant one where people were talking about it. So there have been many times where I've done, I've written about it or I've been interviewed about it. The PBS is one of many, but it's just trying to bring attention that this is okay. And it wasn't to bring attention to the issue, it's to let my people know it's okay to talk about these things and to seek help. <clears throat> but the greatest barrier to it is stigma resources. And that's why we made it free. you know. And we got people after about three, four years of functioning, two mm -hmm. years, people started wanting to pour in resources to what we're doing because they saw the impact it was having in the community. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, thank God now what they're doing is, um, so I'm sure you guys know about this, where now we're kind of training more therapists on like different graduate levels. So you don't technically now need a PhD to be a psychologist. Like, so I'm a mental health counselor, which is like for us, for I think for everybody great, because obviously, I mean, I get to do this for a living because I wouldn't have wanted to go to a PhD program. 
And then on top of that, obviously people get services that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So it's like you kind of have this sort of compounding difficulty where on the one hand, you have a community that feels like they need to be tough and they need to kind of, you know, put a guard up in order to protect themselves. But then also you have a government and a system that doesn't really value mental health at all. I mean, outside of like Kennedy, right? And, you know, opening up a community centers, what was it, the 60s? Like literally there's been nothing significantly done about mental health since like in terms of the government, right? And in terms of like, you know, kind of nationwide policies. So it's like, what's so great about what obviously you're doing is that you're bringing it back to the fore and now the focus obviously in the black community but also in the u.s in general is mental health because it's so interesting with health how it's taken so seriously but mental health is the same thing like you are in some sense your brain right whether you know whether you believe in the soul or not at the very least you are connected to your brain and your brain has to be healthy just like other organs in your body mm-hmm. but look at the CDC just came out and said last year 93,000 deaths due to overdose. Those are deaths right. there, right? And and that is those are connected to mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's no so it's no coincidence we have a record number of overdoses in the year of a pandemic, right? But mm-hmm. to push it further, you said something I want to hit on specifically with the black community. Think about it for a second. I went down right before the pandemic really broke in March of 20 of 2020. We had a group of men I took down to Montgomery, Alabama. It was about 75 men. And we went to, I don't know if you heard about it in Montgomery, the lynching memorial, right? Yeah. And it was a museum and a memorial. So the memorial has all the names of those who were cataloged as being lynched. Right. And when you get down to the end of the memorial, it start, it has these placards as to reasons why different people were lynched. When you see the number of people who were lynched, for example, a wife who was lynched when her husband was lynched, they lynched her because she cried. So when you start seeing these narratives and how African-Americans in this country could not show emotion publicly, right? The dehumanization process between slavery, you know, Jim Crow segregation, you call it even up to today, showing emotion was a dangerous thing. It could have cost you your life. That kind of trauma is ingrained, passed down generationally. So if you're trained not to show emotion, because showing emotion could cause death 80 years ago and it keeps being told, that narrative keeps told. Who's gonna say I'm suffering? Right. You know, the whole notion of not crying, right? For a black person is different than the idea of just saying, oh, man up. No, it's different. Because to show emotion could have meant death. Mm-hmm. So you think about that trauma. So now to get someone to open up and to say, oh, by the way, I'm hurting. I'm emotionally at the end of my rope. I'm mentally depleted. It's hard to get people to talk about it, right? It's easier to look at someone, look how we use it in the church, in many, in many black churches. Someone has a mental illness. They'll say, we need to pray this away. You have a demon. Something is wrong. No. It's easier to dismiss it and spiritualize it than to confront it and seek to heal it, yeah. right? So I, I, that's why for me, I've been very vigilant in talking about it. And it's amazing to me. I have friends, pastors, you know, of course, I mean, this is my work. I went to school with who I, I've known for 30 and have seen what I do, know of what I do, right? I have not reached out to have a conversation about it, right? I had one friend say, you know, how'd you start the Hope Center? He said, I want to do something like that. That was four years ago, I never visited again. Mm-hmm. I think I shared it in the PBS documentary that a friend of a friend, I don't know if I, I can't remember. You know, honestly, I didn't even watch it yet. I haven't <laughs> <laughs> it's worth the watch. Yeah, I, I, I didn't watch it, but I know my phone was blowing up. People who did, oh man, yeah. it was, thank you. And I was like, okay, yeah. 
I didn't I didn't know until the day it was showing that it was coming out. They said PBS sent me a thing. So oh, it's coming premiering tonight. I thought okay. All right. So <laughs> a friend of a pastor had a friend who's a pastor in Georgia. Brother dealt with depression and never talked about it. Bipolar never talked about it. Right. He had two services on this Sunday, eight o'clock and eleven o'clock. He preached at eight o'clock. He went home between services, right, to yeah. check on a family. He usually would pick up his wife and kids, come back for the second service. He gets there. He tells them, go ahead in his wife's car, right? They go to church. Church starts, pastor's not there. Church going, pastor's not there. They're calling us. He's not answering the phone. They go back to the house. He is in his car, in the driveway, slumped over. He shot, his, he shot himself in the head. Preached at 8 o'clock committed suicide before the su second service. Wow. At his funeral, nobody mentioned suicide. Wow. Nobody talked about the fact his wife, that he'd been battling depression for years. No mention of mental illness, no mention of bipolar, nothing. It was as if, well, pastor's no longer here, he died. That's what happens in our communities. You have a pastor who committed suicide and nobody talked about it. Mm. Nobody talked about it. You know, since then, and that was one of those stories that let me know, listen, we got to do better. We right. have to do better. And, and the problem is, is that pastors are afraid to talk about it from the pulpit. Yeah. They'll, 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 you know, oh, well, I read this book, or you may want to, I got tired of referring people to therapy. I wanted to have it close. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to say, hey, what you're dealing with, brother, we can't really help you pastorally, but we got a place right around the corner you can go to. That was the motivation. I want to be able to, I was tired of sending people away. I was like, I want to be able to send them to a place we have. Right now, we can get you help. I can put you in contact right now with the, on the crisis, our crisis hotline. I can put you right now with a mental health first, first, uh, first responder. I can put you right now with a clinician. In this right. past, we were able to do something amazing because of interns. We were able in Harlem to offer mental health services in English, Spanish, French, uh, Japanese, and Mandarin Chinese. Wow. All our interns of different backgrounds were able to do that. Touched all kind of, it was amazing. It was amazing. And you know, it's sort of like, I guess, seemingly paradoxical because on the one hand, it seems like the, the black community is sort of behind in terms of kind of the understanding of mental health. But then if you look at like, let's say, you know, popular entertainment or the music industry, the first person that I could think of that I heard that actually spoke, I mean, I could be wrong. I'm sure it's not him, but that's at least from okay. my memory. Oh, no, Tupac. I would say Pac. Oh, yeah. Just even going back to like Pain, right? The song from 1994 with Stretch, where he said, you know, kind of, um, he said something along the lines of, uh, my memories of a corpse, mindful of sick thoughts, yeah. and, you know, kind of, will I be 23? You know, so much pain, right? And so when you think about that, right, on the one hand, you have kind of like uh, this sort of notion that, well, you know, the mental health kind of aspect of life or mental illness isn't really understood or accepted in the Black community. But then when you look at music, like Kanye or especially Pac, right, you have people who are the first who were pioneers in that, right? While everybody else was thinking about like celebrating and getting drunk or doing whatever, right? Pop was actually talking about having suicidal thoughts and holding a gun to his head and thinking yeah. about his mom and stopping himself. Well, Pop, Pop was a special breed, man. I mean, I will say this with you. This is amazing that we have this conversation. It came to <laughs> so yesterday, a very, one of my mentors um, is a brother named Jamal Joseph. He... Uh, called me. Well, he had called me last. He said, "Brother, I need to show you something." Now, Jamal Joseph is a historic figure. I mean, the brother is an Academy Award-nominated uh, uh, 
writer, songwriter, director. He used to be head of the graduate film uh, studies program at Columbia, right? But his, his, his contribution is deeper. You ever heard of the Panther 21? Of course. Well, he was one of the Panther 21. He was wow. He was a 16-year-old captain in the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Ended up spending eight and a half years in Leavenworth. All right. And but he was also Tupac's godfather because wow. his mom was uh, one of the Panthers. Yeah. Right. And through him, I got to meet her and spend time with her. Wow. And, and what he, I never forget the Sunday he came because he's a member of the church. And he said, Pastor, I got somebody here who wants to meet you. So I'm sitting in the office. I'm like, okay. And he brings in a Phoenix Shakur. What? And and she's crying. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. And she's like, Pastor Mike, I watch you every Sunday. Wow. Like, you remind me so much of my son. Wow. I, I'm broken up. I'm like, oh, God. Oh, my God. He, he was born a couple of weeks after I was born. Right. So they made, right? And I'm sitting there with her and like, and having this conversation. So what happened is yesterday, Jamal calls me and he his and he's actually got a couple of uh, TV and TV series coming out on stars called Panther Babies based on his book about his journey in the Black Panthers. Nice. And but he said, I want you to see something for these these uh, couriers come and pick it up. So he comes by, he calls me. I go by his house, which is two blocks from the church, and he comes in, he has this arm as let's folder. He pulls out a haiku of yeah. poetry. Tupac wrote it when he was 11. He sent it to him when he was in jail. Wow. Going through boxes and found it last a week ago. And he so, so I'm reading it and I'm reading this thing. This kid's right. He said, and at the end, it says your God's a Tupac Shakur. And he said, I'm going to be 11 on June. No, I'll be 12 on June 16th. And he said, and he had, I'm there, he had future freedom fighter. Nice. Wow. And, and this thing is old. You can see how, but it's so preserved. But yeah. Pac's journey is so different. He saw the mental illness. He saw the trauma his family went through, his mother went through, the people who were his uncles and godparents being in prison, you know, in that time. He knew of the narratives. He knew of the story, right? So his IQ, emotional IQ is radically different. You know, I tell people when I think about Pac, and I know the story is based on Jamal, what Jamal has told me about him, and he was close to him. And, you know, you know, it's entertainment, right? So that's a facade. But the brother was deep, man, and yeah. was extremely intelligent. Um, but it was steeped in the, in the movement, you know? And so I think he was doing that work back then and saying it, but you know, entertainment gets a hold of you, man, and the industry gets a hold of you. But there are, you know, there, there are musicians, entertainers who speak about it almost, in, but I'm not, I wonder if it's hitting a note, you know, with, with people. If, is it freeing people up to talk more? Because now again, as you said, everything's about mental mental health. Make sure your mental health is in order. And I and I and I just I hope it's not, you know, what's in vogue right now, right? right. Versus we get to doing some real critical work and really creating institutionalize it in ways that we really get help people who need access um, get that access. You know, I want to see a whole bunch of hope centers around the country, right? Which churches right. are doing because. Churches are still trusted institutions in many of our communities. Yeah. And if the past and the church is addressing it, oh man, it's okay to talk about it. You know? yeah.
Absolutely. And then I want to really quickly give a quick shout out and I want to give you a recommendation, Mike. So um, we actually had, so one of our kind of friends, and so he's like a recurring guest, Napoleon of the Outlaws. So he comes on our show from time to oh, time. Man. Yeah. yeah. So um, so him and Solomon Jenkins just re- recently wrote a book about Napoleon's life called Life is Raw. And wow. so the, sto- the story of a reformed outlaw. So I really want to recommend it. So, um, so the way Napoleon kind of framed it is that, so he said that, so Solomon is not technically a therapist, but he said it's kind of, it was like therapy for him. So wow. as he was recounting his story, kind of like meeting Pac, you know, them forming the outlaws together. He's like, a lot of these experiences were therapeutic for me because Solomon would ask me these questions about like deep and like really buried stuff that I haven't thought about or talked about in years. So it was a really cool book because for Napoleon, right? He's like, yo, mental health was like not a thing for us back in those days. He's like, like in the nineties, eighties, whatever, like nobody was talking about this stuff. And he's like, for now, for me to talk about like the tragedy of like having my parents shot in front of me, um, like, you know, kind of going through all the different like deaths, Pac's death. Uh, Gaddafi died recently. Well, not recently, but like a little bit after that. And so for him, it was like such an unbelievable experience because he's like, yo, I never really talked about these experiences. Not really, not in depth until I wrote this book with Solomon. And so, and then also a shout out to Solomon because for him to even be able to get that out of Napoleon, who's like this really tough guy, right? It was for us like pretty incredible to hear from both ends, like both of their experiences. No, I think when you, when, if it, when you think about, I think about my experience, I grew up in a community is completely black the only time I the first time I was in class with a white with a white uh classmate was when I had to transfer to school because I had issues in other school I was in and I was like right. I never it was a third black a third Latino and a third white and I was like what is this and, and mm-hmm. I grew up in a community called Roosevelt I don't even know if you heard of this place in New York no. Roosevelt is one square mile completely African-American but here's a killer the last white family to move out of Roosevelt and the last white White guy, the graduate from Roosevelt High School was Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. Oh yeah, I never remember in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was like, yeah, he was totally white guy in that black school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so here's the thing about Roosevelt. This little community that in the '80s became a haven for crack, right? And mm-hmm. and I found myself on the wrong side of that <laughs> that game and doing things I shouldn't have done. But this little town, seeing someone shot was nothing. Seeing someone laid out OD was nothing. It was, and, and that is trauma. Yeah. And you start taking this in every day, but it produced some amazing things. This little bitty town, you know, yeah, Howard Stern from there, you know, Dr. J was from there, Eddie Murphy was from there. That was our hero. Yeah. So as a kid, Eddie did not move out of Roosevelt. Um, he, he did trading places. He was still living, no, he was so sad in that life and still living in Roosevelt. He did yeah. trading places and was still living in Roosevelt. It wasn't until then that he, he got out. But he was a hero. So we had this small little enclave. Public Enemy is out of Roosevelt, mm-hmm. right? So all these musicians, actors, I mean, I can name go on and on who came out of Roosevelt, this small little town, drug ridden, poverty ridden. But at the same time, you know, the, the people who came out and, and you see the work they're doing. But all of us felt trauma in some way. When you start, when, when you are not moved by seeing someone shot, Right, I remember being 11 years old, saw two guys in an argument, and one guy pulled out a salt off and blew him in the chest. I saw this in front of me. I saw a hole in the man's chest. And they was like, oh, don't hang around there no more. That was it. At 11 years old, you see that, it's like, like, you know, those things last, I can still see that. So he was right. I mean, we see these things, his parents being dead, you know, Pac's mom being on drugs, but also seeing the brutality of being part of the movement growing up. Those things create some deep fractures psychologically that we just go on, we just go undressed. 
you know, and we find ways to cope and, and find ways to make sense and find ways to make meaning. So. Absolutely. I love that. All right, Alan, any final questions for Mike before we wrap up? Yeah. If, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Um, well, the church is, as you saw, no fcbcnyc.org or fcbcnyc is a line on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, Instagram. Me is, is at Mike Walren. Um, at M-I-K-E-W-A-L-R-O-N-D on Instagram or Twitter. And uh, yeah, man, you know, we, we, I'm just continuing to do the work, bro. You know. Oh, and then also, if anybody wanted to help contribute to the church's efforts, how can we do that? Oh, the best way to, oh, in terms of the mental health piece? Anything. Yeah, but mental health, yeah, specifically, but yeah, whatever. I, I tell people, it's Hope Center Harlem. Mm -hmm. you know, one word, hopecenterharlem.org. And you can go there, you can see what the Hope Center does. We have, it's funny, we have another place called the Dream Center. Mm -hmm. And next year we're gonna open up a social justice space called the Act Center. So Dream, Hope, Act. Nice. Uh, and, but Hope Center is the, really the one where we get, a, people are really donating because we do this amazing work um, with men, around mental health. Uh, young lady who runs it, uh, she does have a doctorate in, in social work, but she's also a, a, a trained psychotherapist and a clinical social worker. Um, but the team is amazing. And um, so I would tell people, anyone who makes it want to help support, support the Hope Center, because that is a work that is critical in our community. So hopecenterharlem.org. All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. This was incredibly amazing. enlightening. Look, man, and, and call me back. I want to talk about uh, some other stuff, baby. You can talk about <laughs> right, you're welcome back whenever you want, man. Literally, right. whenever you want, man. man I'm going to take y'all up with that, man, because I'm... I'm, I'm um, yeah, some things I'm doing right now, working on. Um, about to kind of sign this contract for a two book deal. So, I stuff, man. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Oh, and we yeah, we love books here. So anytime. Brother, that's all I do, man. Read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. We'll and look, I got I got to shout out this because at the whole Center, we got all kind of uh, merchandise, and I didn't. You can't really see it, but I'm gonna pull it down here with the shirt says. My yeah. mental health matters. Oh, that's cool. That's really wow. That's really cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna actually get that shirt. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's really cool. So, and then and this the most famous shirt we had that was so we keep people keep from around the country as it's called Healing is the New Black. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, man. But man, thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So we'll be in touch with you soon. Thanks All so right, much. Bro, take take care. Care. All right, bye, Mike. <laughs> All right. That was awesome. Wow. That was awesome. Yeah, I have no words for that. <laughs> All right, guys. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank you so much for watching and look forward to the next episode.